Welcome to the Story Church, uh, whether you're here in person, here in our uh, new Bethany campus in River Oaks, or joining us online, um, wherever y'all are. I mean, you're probably all over the place, uh, Fredericksburg. Um, we know we've got uh, folks uh, gathered in College Station, Bryan, and all across the state of Texas and, and uh, the country as well. But, but folks that are uh, at home because you're sick today or because you got a sick family member, we're just, uh, we're, we're grateful that you're joining us. My assistant, Denise, is homesick today. Everybody say hi, Denise. She can hear you. She's watching right now. And so I'm um, grateful for that as well and this technology that allows us to connect with y'all wherever you are. You're part of the story today. Um, you got study guides. We'll get to the message in just a moment. Um, first, just a last minute sort of reminder about next Sunday, huge day for the Story Church. We're welcoming friend of the story, friend of the Maybe God podcast, and New York Times bestselling author, Pastor John Burke, who wrote um, Imagine Heaven um, a few years back and um, has written a follow-up book called Imagine the God of Heaven. If you're unfamiliar with uh, Burke's work, it is um, a collection of hundreds of accounts of near-death experiences, and particularly the experiences people have had with the divine, with God, in, uh, on the other side of, of this life, um, before being sent back or coming back. And it's really insightful and, and really inspiring stuff, and I hope that you'll um, come next week. He'll be here in person, speaking at all of our services. I can't wait to be here and join all of you um, to learn and be inspired through that. So I hope y'all can be here as well. All right. Um, so today is almost the end of 2024, believe it or not. Um, we are almost through the first month of this new year. I was walking in the door with a guy who goes here has for years, and he was like, uh, it's, it's, it's been a wild year. And I'm like, bro, it's less than a month of this year. <laughs> and, and, but I get it. I think we all get it. Like, it's just, it's, it's relentless sometimes how things work and, and this life we're living. And, and 2024 is an, uh, sort of a remarkable year for my family, the Huffman family, as it marks 10 years since we decided to make the journey south from Kansas City down to Houston. We had lived in Kansas City for 13 years, and in June of 2024, we made the journey. This is a picture of me next to the Welcome to Texas sign um, with uh, the lights of my U-Haul truck lighting up the picture. And so I pulled over and took this picture. I was so happy to, to come home to Texas after so many years away, and that was 10 years ago um, this year, 2014. And we came here, my wife and Pastor Gio and, and our two kids who were six and four at the time, and now they're 16 and 14, crazy. Um, we, we came here uh, to, to start a new faith community, a new church. And uh, we didn't really know what it would look like. We didn't know what it would be called. We didn't know who would join us or anything like that. But we got here and, um, and soon after that got to work um, we held our first meeting in July of 2014 with folks that were interested in helping us launch this new thing. About 25 people showed up. And the next month after that, um, August of 2014, um, Gio and I announced the name of our new community. We called it The Story, which confused everybody. Why would you call a new church The Story of All Things? And, uh, and there's the, the, the set where we announced on video the name of this new thing. A few weeks after that, we launched our first small group. Here's a picture of the first small group that we launched. These 10 people are all precious to me in different ways. Five of them are still faithfully attending this church. Some of them are in this room right now. Um, this is my dentist right here, right here. My dentist, he's right there, and he's right here. He's right here, and he's right there. 
His name is Reynolds. He's a great dentist. And, and uh, this message is brought to you by Reynolds. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> and, and, uh, and I'm just amazed when I look at that picture because it was the first group of any kind that we um, started. We were cute back then, so we called them chapters. It was chapter one. And they were the, the originals. Um, and, and it's so interesting to me how the Lord has worked in 10 years to make out of one group, well over 40 groups that are meeting this season across our campuses and, um, and full of people that are just loving the Lord together and getting connected and, and really having the Lord change their lives through the community groups. So from one to 40, and in the same 10 year span, the Lord has taken that 25 people group at that first gathering where we were sharing ideas and we didn't have a name or anything and has allowed us over these 10 years to reach thousands of people through this church and our message and the podcast. And, and what a blessing that is. Like we shouldn't take that lightly or take it for granted. It's been incredible. And all told, it's just been this unbelievable decade of ministry. And that said, I, I, I also want to acknowledge it hasn't been easy, right? It's been full of difficulty, trial, pushback, you know, resistance from our enemy, our spiritual enemy and all that. And, and yet I find it hard to complain because most pastors I know would trade places with me in a, in a heartbeat. Like when I try to complain with other pastors who minister in other places to other churches that aren't as great as the story church, um, they tend to roll their eyes when I complain. I, and I recognize that when I complain, I sound a little bit entitled. And so I want to be slow to complain. You know, they're always like, oh, poor Eric, you know, with your River Oaks Church. You had to slum it in the museum district for two years. Oh, no. It's like, okay, I get it. I really do. I understand the pushback. But at the same time, I want to acknowledge the trials we've overcome. And there have been many. And I've noticed um, as I look back on this 10 years that the trials are not random, the troubles and difficulties we face when we're following Jesus in a fallen world like this, they are not coincidental. It comes as a pattern, really. And the pattern works a little bit like this, like you're up against some resistance, but because you love Jesus and you trust him, you push through the resistance and the Lord gives you a breakthrough of some kind. The Lord gives you a revival and, and you watch the revival unfold because you persevered through the resistance by the grace of God. But then in the aftermath of the breakthrough, after the revival sets in, get ready because that's when the trials come. After the revival come the riots from hell. After the revival come the pushback the counterinsurgency of our spiritual enemy. And it takes many forms. I'm just telling you, I've seen it happen. It, it's rare that a church is just coasting along and everything's ordinary and the devil's really upset about it. But when it, I've, I've seen it where we'll baptize 25 people on a Sunday and then by Tuesday, I've heard of three couples in the church that are breaking up over infidelity or something, you know? Families torn apart by adultery and things like that. And it seems to happen in tandem um, as, a, as a result of the breakthrough, the enemy breaks through in his own way. And, uh, you know, it's, it's not always like, you know, adultery and affairs and things like that. Sometimes it's, it's all sorts of other things. But, but the pattern holds true. And it's a pattern that we should all be aware of. Because it's true in your life. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, 
please receive this. I don't mean this in a judgy way. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, it might be because you're not pushing through the initial resistance and trusting God to give you, to show you what revival looks like. Like maybe you're not even taking that initial risk and trusting him enough to, to, to see what he can do and then ultimately to see the, the enemy's backlash. Like maybe that's why you're not seeing it because if you're just sort of a status quo Christian, the spiritual enemy we call the devil will be happy to leave you alone. That's why you know, most churches just sort of float and drift. It's like the path of least resistance. But to be bold invites not just revival from heaven, but resistance from hell. And we should be ready for both. Most churches, most Christians are ready for revival, or we think we are, but we don't really prepare for what happens after. And so what we're going to see today, in, as part of today's um, series, uh, our, our series through the book of Acts, what we're going to see today is, um, is a, a, an example of this very thing. This is part 19 in our series called Acts of the Apostles. Um, today's reading is from Acts 18, uh, chapter 18, and uh, we're just going to start with one verse, okay? Because we're going to sort of set the table by looking at the setting where Paul was. So if you want to open your Bible or, or turn your Bible on, whatever generation you belong to, you can uh, do that. And, and if you're new here and you don't really know the Bible yet or you're not familiar, you can just follow along on the screens. Here's what it says. In Acts chapter 18, verse 1. Hello. Lights. I think you just leaned on them there, Kennedy. It's all good. All right. <laughs> just keep pushing buttons. It'll be fine. Acts chapter 18, verse 1 says, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. After this, Paul left Athens where he was last Sunday during that sermon. And he went to Corinth. So Paul is seeing here... Um, uh, Paul is living the tail end of a, of a longer journey. So he's in, coming toward the end of his second missionary journey, which was a years-long like, effort to reach the lost. And he's coming to the end of it. And so what we're seeing, if you really read the text, is Paul um, at his wit's end. You ever felt like a spent shell case? You know, it's like you're just, you got nothing left. You're just empty, an empty vessel. I feel like that sometimes when I'm getting ready to preach. I'm like, what am I going to say? I got nothing. I got nothing. I got nothing. That's when he does his best work is usually when I'm like, I got nothing. And, and he'll fill the void. And sometimes that's how life is. It's how ministry is. And we're all in ministry. Everybody's following Jesus is in ministry. All right? And Paul uh, was, was ministering in Corinth, but he was discouraged. He was tired. And he was in Corinth, which is the real material part of this uh, verse. Corinth was not an average place. It was the largest city in Greece in around 50 AD, which is when these events took place. Corinth was notorious for being not just a wealthy port city, a multicultural city full of hustlers and bustlers, making a lot of money and all that. It was notorious for indulgence. It was notorious for alcohol. The, the adjective Corinthian was a euphemism for alcoholic in those days. Literally, like in every Greek play of the day, the Corinthian character was always like flat out drunk. He was a total like wino, just a drunk. And that's what it meant to be a Corinthian. 
And part of it was alcohol, and there were other indulgences too. Corinth was known for its sexual indulgences. Um, you walk through the streets of Corinth and you were sure to be propositioned by all sorts of prostitutes and male and female prostitutes, many of them religious prostitutes in their own way, paying homage and inviting you, the, the Corinthian, you know, uh, inhabitant to pay homage to their God or goddess of choice. Usually the goddess of sexual love is who they were sort of commissioned to, uh, to do their work for. And that was Aphrodite. And the great temple in Corinth was Aphrodite's temple, which sat atop a hill and looked a lot like this. This is, I think, a screenshot from uh, the Assassin's Creed game. But uh, it's also a very, a very realistic adaptation of, of, um, of what the temple of, of Aphrodite really looked like. We have, the ruins are still there, so it wouldn't be a big of a stretch to recreate it. And... Um, and Aphrodite's uh, sort of mandate to the world was uh, to lead people toward more sexual indulgence through prostitution. There was a very famous quote or quip about Corinth that, that said, uh, it went this way, not every fellow can afford a trip to Corinth. And that was obviously the subtext of it uh, is like, you know, a little bit Vegas-esque, right? Like not every, you can imagine someone saying not every man can afford a trip to Vegas and it's multiple meanings. And, um, and so Corinth obviously had its vices out in the open. And so this is the city Paul was stepping into. Paul himself was propositioned daily by these prostitutes of Aphrodite, no doubt, as were all of the Christian converts, and there were all sorts of temptations, sexual and otherwise, that they had to overcome and push through and get by and avoid, right? And we get a sense of the difficult task that Paul had in planting this church in Corinth by the letter that he later wrote to that church that he started. So he wrote a letter to the congregation that he launched a few years after he launched it, and this is what he said about who they were when he first met them. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of y'all were. Yes, it should say y'all, because that you is a plural you, and proper English doesn't have a word for that. Texan English, which is true proper English, does. It's y'all, all right? So it should be y'all. He's talking about all y'all, like in the Corinthian church. Like, that's what y'all were, is all this. So the Corinthian church was full of people who struggle with the, you know, vices of all kinds, but the kind of vices you would expect in Corinth. Now, the reason all of this matters to us today isn't just to talk bad about places like Corinth and Vegas. It's because I believe Houston would look a lot like Corinth if our secrets were out. Vegas is sin city, maybe, but Houston is secret sin city. I don't know why. Maybe it's the fact we used to be in the Bible Belt. I don't think we are anymore, but but maybe the polite society, the Texas sort of all shucks, hospitality kind of culture just keeps our, our sins hidden from the world, whereas in other places you can more safely live out in the open with them. But I've seen it, and I've only been here 10 years, but I've seen it. 
I've never seen people drink like we drink in Houston. Good Lord, you people. I'm just kidding, not you people, but them. And, and sexual sins are, you know, this is well known to be a hub of, of human sex trafficking and, and um, prostitution. And, and, you know, we see a lot of the brokenness of that, that's caused by adultery and other kinds of things. And obviously it's a little hidden, but it's really not. Houston is not that dissimilar from Corinth, and, and I just think we should acknowledge that. I think one reason why it's so sort of rampant with sin is because it's such a hard place to live, and, and I mean that. I've only been there 10 years again, but I can tell you, as much as I love this city, I can't say it's, it's an easy place to call home. It kind of eats your lunch a little bit. The hustle and bustle of it all. I, I mean, everybody works really hard, and everybody plays even harder, and the traffic is just the worst. And, you know, half the drivers are uninsured motorists, so if you get in an accident, you're going to be, even if it's not your fault, you're going to be on the hook for it, probably. And if an uninsured motorist doesn't get you, one of the potholes will, and then you're still on the hook. It's like, the pothole ate my car. And I am to blame, okay, all right? And so, you know, the weather can be rough, the flooding, the every 10 years, the ice that apparently the grid can't take, and, and we all freeze to death for a few days, and, and the, you know, the mosquitoes are like hawks, and all of it, it just the freaking cockroaches fly. All of it is just, <laughs> it's a lot to handle, and... I guess if you can afford to and you, you choose to get out of this city with some regularity, you can survive here. But most people don't get out of the city with regularity. And so it just sort of, it sort of eats us up and exhausts us. And it can wear us so thin that our defenses are worn down and we're more susceptible to spiritual and attack and other kinds of temptations. I think that's what happens to a lot of Houstonians. That's why I'm not sure it's that different from Corinth. Um, we're just better at hiding our vices. Let's look at uh, how this passage continues in Acts 18. Um, after it says Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, it says, there he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. So Aquila and Priscilla, husband and wife, adorable. Can we all agree? <laughs> Aquila and Priscilla, it's like when they met, they just knew. They just knew. It rhymes, okay? Because Claudius, the emperor, Claudius, had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. That's a verified historical fact that he did, in fact, expel the Jews from Rome at this time because the Romans sensed a Christian uprising, but they didn't know how to distinguish Christians from all the Jews. And so they just thought some Jewish guy named Christus was, was stoking the fires, and so they're like, away with all of you. In reality, Christus was Christ, the risen Savior, and the leader of the Christian movement. Nevertheless, Paul went to see them. He went to see Aquila and Priscilla. And because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. So, real quick aside here, because this is worth acknowledging, Paul, in the beginning of this passage, was only teaching on the Sabbath day. Why? Because he had a real job, too. 
He was a tent maker, a leather worker. In all the other days of the week, the work week, he was working like a real man works. And then uh, on Sabbath day, he would go and reason with unbelievers in the Sabbath or, or, or reason with the Jews and Gentiles in the Sabbath to try to get their attention as far as Jesus was concerned and convince them to become Christians. But in the beginning, he was only doing it one day of the week until Silas and Timothy arrived. Did you catch it? Silas and Timothy arrived, and then Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching. This is telling us something, and what's telling us it, it sort of requires some New Testament knowledge. And again, there's uh, references in the study guides to these passages. But basically, elsewhere in the New Testament, we get wind that, that, that Silas and Timothy brought Paul an offering from another church. They came from Macedonia with an offering in hand that allowed Paul to go into ministry full-time in Corinth. And this is something, if you'll allow me a personal aside, this is something I felt especially grateful for this week. Because it's a gift every full-time pastor and minister and church leader, staff person can sometimes take for granted. Of course we pay our church staff and pastors to do their thing full-time. That's what we do in Texas or whatever. Everybody does it. No, they don't. It's not the norm. It's extraordinary. And you should understand how, not only how grateful I am and others at this church and other churches where this happens are and should be. You should understand what a kingdom difference it makes when a church is generous enough to support not just its own pastors, but other pastors and other churches and other places to do what they're called to do full time. What a blessing. The first nine or 10 years of my pastoral ministry in GO2, we were in ministry together, we were part time. And she had an eBay business to help us make ends meet, and I sold. Uh, subprime home loans contributing to the, I'm pretty sure, to the uh, economic downfall of 2009. My bad. So, <laughs> who knew? Anyway, we had mouths to feed, okay? So, um, that's, we, you just, you scratch, you claw, you get by. But to have a church that, that is generous enough that allows us to do the work that we do full time. And I look forward to the day when the story is stable enough financially to bless other pastors, other churches, both here in Houston and beyond, even throughout the world, to do what they're called to do full time. Because it can be such a blessing to the world uh, around them. And so I just wanted to, to offer that uh, word and the, that, that thank you from my heart to yours um, on, on that note. So let's keep going. Acts 18 verse 6 says, But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the, the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, Crispus, the synagogue leader in his entire household, believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. Let's stop there for a second. This is an amazing turn of events. In a place like Corinth, after Paul was basically run out of the synagogue, shaking his clothes of them and, and saying, my, your blood's not on my head anymore, it's on your own. To have this turnaround where Paul didn't leave the synagogue alone, if you read closely. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, like that was his job, y'all. He followed Paul across the street, received Christ and all of his family with him. And it opened up the floodgates and other Gentiles came to believe because of the momentum that was started with, sorry, with Crispus's initial conversion. What a beautiful 
powerful thing. It's a, it's a reminder that it only takes one person to stand up and be vulnerable to really open the floodgates, and that's what happened. By the end of chapter 18, by the way, there was a new synagogue leader. Crispus lost his job. It's just part of that backlash uh, against revival that I said every Christian should be, should be ready for because that's exactly what happens. That's what happened to um, Crispus. So the question here isn't just what happened to Crispus, though. It's what's going on with Paul? Because none of what happens next makes any sense. Everything's going Paul's way. Paul's living the pastor's dream. No pastor would look at Paul and go, oh, poor Paul. You got a big revival in Corinth on your hands. Oh, oh, darn. No, and, and no one would feel sorry for him. But Paul, in the aftermath of this turnaround, is apparently discouraged. Apparently, he's been silenced by his discouragement, by his despair. We know that because of what happens in the next verse. Look at verse 9 of 18, chapter 18, verse 9. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Don't be afraid. Keep on speaking. Don't be silent, for I'm with you. And no one's going to attack you or harm you, because I have many people in this city. And so Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. This is what the Lord came to Paul and said in this vision. Um, it doesn't make sense. Paul was at a peak in his ministry. Many Gentiles in Corinth were coming to faith. The synagogue leader had come to faith and come to Christ. His whole family with him. And here's the Lord coming to Paul saying, don't be afraid and keep speaking, which would imply that Paul was very afraid and he had stopped speaking. Why else would he say that? And, and this time when the Lord comes to Paul and says, don't be afraid, it's not like the times when the angel comes to people and the angel presumably is like this big, scary, fierce, monster looking thing because they're like, don't be afraid. And everybody's like, oh my God. And they're like, don't be afraid because apparently angels are fearsome things. That's not what's going on here. This is a voice coming to Paul from the Lord. Don't be afraid. Why? Because Paul was afraid. Keep speaking. Why? Because Paul had stopped speaking. Why? Well, the subtext here seems pretty clear that Paul knew how the pattern worked. Paul perceived the same pattern I described to you earlier. The pattern of breakthrough followed by resistance. The, the pattern of, of, of success in ministry followed by um, temptation, riots from hell. You know, this sort, of, this sort of pattern that Paul perceived is it's something we've talked about the last few weeks. I mean, if you think about back in Acts chapter 16 when Paul delivered the slave girl from the demon that was possessing her and she was the fortune teller girl. Remember what it said? In Acts 16, verse 19, it said, when her owners, when that girl's owners realized that their hope of making money off of her was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, and a riot from hell broke out. They ended up in prison. A similar story unfolds in Acts 17 and in Acts 18. And if we're going to see it by the end of this chapter, Paul's premonition about the resistance, the pushback that's coming was spot on. By the end of this chapter in Acts 18, it says that uh, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. So 
When heaven breaks through for believers in this fallen world, there's often, or it feels like there's often hell to pay. Sometimes for Paul and for Christians like us, those attacks aren't getting thrown in prison. Sometimes it's just temptation. You don't think Paul, after leading this sort of revival in a place like Corinth, wasn't greeted on his way home by especially attractive prostitutes on the city streets? You don't think he faced significant temptation from the dark forces at work in this world? You don't think the other side of this battle knew that if they can just get to Paul? This is why everybody's so surprised and heartbroken and hurt whenever church leaders fall from grace. Because it's such a shock. Because it always seems to happen whenever things couldn't seem to be going better at a church. Some of y'all have been a part of churches like this. Where it's like, man, we just, we can't find enough chairs to fit in a room. Because this preacher of ours is on fire. This church of ours is growing like crazy. Heaven is making inroads in this fallen city. And then the next week, there's a resignation and a scandal, and the aftermath, the heartbreak that takes years to recover from. It's always when a church is breaking through. Why? Because the breakthrough beckons the pushback from hell. And so we should be ready for it. It's not that we shouldn't pray for breakthrough and welcome it when it comes. It's we should be ready for what comes after it as well. And pastors and everybody else included. And so um, that is, I think, why Paul is in this state of dread. He knew from experience that revivals from heaven often are followed by riots from hell. He'd seen it again and again. And that's why Jesus came to Paul that night to encourage him. And I want you to see how Jesus encouraged Paul. He encouraged him with his threefold promise. First, he said, for I will be with you, right? So he came to him and he said, don't be afraid, keep talking, for I will be with you. That's his presence. And no one is going to attack and harm you. Now, I kind of wish, I'm sure Paul kind of wished that it said attack or harm you. <laughs> Neither of those things will happen to you. It just says attack and harm. They'll still attack you, Paul, but they won't attack and harm you. Right? That's, that's the promise of God's protection over Paul. And then third, most, I think most touching of the three is this third promise, because I have many people in this city, the Lord promised Paul. And Paul, I imagine giving the Lord a double take, like this city, Corinth? Like, have you been here? Like that sort of thing. And, and unbeknownst to Paul, God had people already planted throughout that city to encourage Paul and come alongside of him. God, when we face the backlash the inevitable backlash from hell, especially in the aftermath of some heavenly breakthrough in our lives, God offers us the same threefold promise, doesn't he? To be with you, to protect you from real harm, and to surround you with his people. And this is a beautiful thing that I experienced. Y'all, I, again, I don't ever want to be a I don't know. I don't really even like talking about myself. I, I truly don't. It's just the only life I know to talk about. It's like my, you know, my experience, but, and, and I, I know um, I've got a, a great experience, a great situation. I wouldn't change anything that's happened, but the last few years, really from COVID on, uh, it was just really, really rough in ministry, especially in 2021 when I spoke boldly and maybe 
brashly even, um, against sort of denominational stuff that was going on when we were part of the United Methodist Church. And I said some things I felt like needed to be said, but um, there was a price to pay. And, uh, and we paid it, and uh, we paid it as a family, and literally, like, there was some loss there, like, from a financial standpoint, from a social standpoint, from all these standpoints, and, and that's part of why you saw in the pictures that I shared earlier, you saw pictures from 10 years ago of a man who looked a lot younger than 10 years younger than me. So <laughs> the picture that I showed you was from just 10 years ago, and you look at me now, and you're like, that dude's aged at least 20 years in these 10 years. How did that happen? That's what happens when you're following Jesus faithfully in a fallen world. There's not enough Botox on earth to keep up with what happens. And it reminds me of this, of this uh, meme that I saw one time of, about pastoral ministry of this old dude. And, and uh, it says, uh, do we have it? Uh, it says, who said pastoring a church is stressful? I'm 42 and feeling great. <laughs> it's not just pastors either. Anybody, especially I would say people that have real jobs every day and you're trying to follow Jesus faithfully. You should see how my dentist looks now. I mean, it's even worse. Like it's a way old. I'm just kidding. He's just kidding. He's a very... A lot of gray, yeah. Bro, the other day my son said to me, Daddy, I think you left some gel in your hair because he saw whites on the side. I was like, bro, that's just the gray hairs, man. But thanks for making me feel better. I appreciate it. That's what happens. Following Jesus faithfully in a fallen world like this will tax you. It will stress you out. And for every breakthrough, there will be pushback. The question isn't whether. The question is when. And how will you Respond, will you choose to trust the threefold promise of God that he's with you, that he'll protect you, that he'll surround you with his people, and those people will encourage you. Y'all, there's been nothing like the encouragement of my fellow believers, other pastors in the city of Houston that reached out, pastors that I had never met or talked to really before, that reached out in love to take me to coffee, to nurse me through a difficult time. The folks of this church, my own um, community, the staff and pastors of this community that surrounded me during that time, there's nothing like it. But I'll tell you what, when times were at their darkest and the despair was its heaviest, I still had to choose to trust the promise of God enough to subject myself to that community. The easier choice would have been to pull back. It's a choice you'll all get to face and you'll all get to make whenever things get hard and you start to wonder whether God's promises are true, you'll have to make the choice to show up or stay home, to show up and be surrounded by God's people as he's promised or to stay home and reject the promise of God. There's such encouragement when believers gather. As broken and imperfect and annoying as Christians can be sometimes, there's such hope and beauty when Christians choose to gather, even or especially in dark and difficult days. I look around a, a room like this at every one of our services, and I could, I could point to you in every section a different person who has a great story to tell. But the reason you all have that great story to tell is because when the darkness was at its darkest, you persevered through the resistance and trusted the promises of God. The things you overcome, 
amaze me when I look back on our time together. Some of you have pressed through difficulties in your marriages. Some of you have pressed through divorce and the brokenness of that. Some of you have persevered through real um, loss, whether it's through infertility and miscarriage or the loss of a child that you gave birth to, a child you were raising, or the loss of a loved one, the loss of a spouse, the loss of a job. Some of you have persevered through all sorts of doubts and darkness, and you're here with a story to tell. Why? Because through your persevering, you, prom- you believed in the promises of God, you trusted him and what he says about you. This was Paul's real message to the Corinthians when he wrote to them, by the way, in 1 Corinthians 6. It wasn't to remind them of what a bunch of fools they were when he met them. It was to give them this final encouragement. After he gave them that whole list of things that used to be, he wrote to them in verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 6, and that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is what happens when we trust the promises of God. He never leaves us as he found us. No matter how messed up we were when he found us, he restores us and redeems us and makes us new. I pray that you'll trust him and his promises enough to persevere whatever you're going through. Everybody in this room is going to go through something you don't want to do tomorrow. I don't want to go to that job that I hate. I don't want to teach those kids that I, I don't want to say, those kids that I struggle to love. I don't want to, I don't want to keep loving this spouse who's not loving me back as I, as I need to be loved. I don't want to keep trying to find the one I'm supposed to marry, you know, when, when there just aren't any good men left in the world. I don't want to keep living this life that I'm living. Trust the promises of God that he is with you, that he will protect you, and that he'll surround you with his people. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this reminder. We pray that you would keep us on your path, even when it's hard, and especially when it's hard. Lord, we've seen one breakthrough after another. We've seen conversions and baptisms. We've seen people finding you that once were so far from you, including us, we ourselves. The miracles never cease to amaze us, Lord, but sometimes it's, it's hard to push through the resistance that we face in a fallen world like this. I pray that you would give us the wherewithal to trust your promises anew today, that you're with us, that you're protecting us, and that you're surrounding us with your people, Lord, who support and pray for us. We love you, and we thank you for all these many gifts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.